Hello and welcome to the EACCNY Transatlantic Pulse, a podcast platform that showcases transatlantic business insights from both sides of the pond. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild and I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York. We hope you will enjoy this podcast and I encourage you to subscribe to our programs on your favorite podcast channel. Our guest for today's episode is His Excellency Stravos Labrinidis, the EU Ambassador to the United States, in conversation with Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking News. Great to see you, Ambassador, and to see the European Union and the American flags behind you. Uh, you're in Washington. I'm coming to you from the European Union. Uh, there's been It's been a pretty incredible shift in the, what can I say, the chemistry between the European Union and the United States. You're there in Washington. You are the representative of the European Union. Why don't you explain a little, just give us a characterization of how it's shifted, say, in the past, well, since January, since the Biden administration was sworn in. Well, in, in some ways, it feels like a sea change when it comes to the rhetoric. So, uh, so as you probably remember, uh, in the past uh, four years, there was a lot of negative rhetoric towards the European Union that was accompanied by a conviction, it appeared, that uh, the United States could achieve its, uh, its interests for its citizens around the world, not only not working together with the EU, but in some cases working against the EU, or considering the EU to be a, uh, you know, a, an impediment to the U.S. ability to achieve its goals. And since uh, January 2021, you have, a, uh, like I said, a sea change shift in this, in this approach. There seems to be an analysis now that uh, that looks at, at the world as a um, ever-shifting difficult place with uh, different major powers um, that do not share European and American values asserting themselves much more effectively and much more aggressively in a sense that for the United States to be able to regain its leadership role and promote its interests it can only do this if it works with the biggest ally that it has, whether it is on the basis of values or whether it is on the basis of free and open economy or whether it is on the basis of hardcore security, uh, and that and that uh, allies the EU. So that has also changed the nature of uh, my work here in the United States and our work as an embassy. Uh, we played quite a bit of defense uh, in the past, trying to explain why the EU is not an enemy. And now we have a very different role, which is to to ensure that we can bring to the table uh, as European Union uh, concrete deliverables that promote uh, both the interests of European citizens, uh, security interests, prosperity interests, and the interests of the United States at the same time. This is what happened back in uh, December 2020 when uh, the EU came out with the so-called joint communication. It was the first time that the European Union came out with an affirmative blueprint proposal uh, for how the relations should develop in the next few years, what the real challenges are, health and COVID, climate uh, change and, uh, and resilience, um, the new digital age, and of course, a number of foreign policy values, human rights challenges. And we came with concrete proposals how to address them. And all this fed in, I have to say, I'm very pleased to see, in the summit, uh, in the EU-US summit on the 15th of June. Many things that you saw announced there, such as the Trade and Technology Council between the EU and the US, came out from that joint communication. So in some ways, I have much more work now, uh, as do we <laughs> all. You know, in the past. Well, it's interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. You, t- you mentioned rhetor- the rhetoric certainly has changed. The warmth, the, the just the, the the way that the Biden administration speaks relative to the Trump administration, of course. I mean, wh- wh- where do we see the tangible benefits or results of this? I mean, are there what would you point to as as sort of things that have actually happened as a result of that shift in rhetoric or in relations? What I would say the, the most immediate thing that you saw coming out of the summit was was the decision of of, uh, of the U.S. And, and and Europe to ground the uh, long-standing dispute on civil aircraft, the airbus Boeing dispute, as is well known. Right. This, uh, you know, this uh, had become extremely contentious the past few years. Uh, we have both lost the case at the WTO, but the previous administration decided to impose, you know, massive tariffs on uh, on the EU. It had the right to do that in that case. It didn't have the right, right. or the right to do it in other cases. And then we, of course, had to respond with with massive tariffs against Boeing. Now, as we're coming out of COVID recovery, uh, of COVID, and we're trying to recover economies, there's no sector that perhaps has been more hard hit by, by COVID and more important a message to send that the transatlantic alliance is is helping the world economy than the airline sector setting, setting this dispute, and we did so. So that is a very tangible thing. Another tangible thing is our, our decision to work together to ensure that we set the rules of the road for the economy of the 21st century. And that is hugely important for the prosperity of our citizens and for the prosperity of citizens around the world. We do have, uh, through the Trade and Technology Council, a, a wide array of um, areas in which we have decided to cooperate, whether it is uh, working together to set standards for the new technologies, artificial intelligence, or what have you, whether it is to find ways to spur innovation and innovative leadership of the EU and the US in many of these new technologies, whether it has to do with looking at uh, a cooperation on, on other instruments, such as export controls or foreign direct investment screenings. All these things have a very important values component uh, that underlie them. You know, uh, artificial intelligence will be governing our lives. It has to be human uh, rights centric. And, uh, you know, there are some countries around the world today, including China, that are developing AI in a very different direction to create social scoring, to develop, you know, massive surveillance. Now, you know, there's a world out there and that world expects, uh, you know, leadership in how these technologies will be used. And when the U.S. and the EU sit down together to try to set these rules, uh, I can assure you the rest of the world is standing up and, uh, and paying attention. So this is another example of concrete cooperation that could make a huge difference, uh, you know, in the way that our world develops. And then, of course, there are broader a- areas of discussion. How do we ensure in COVID that, you know, um, open societies such as the U.S. and the EU demonstrate the kind of leadership that the world is thirsting for? Uh, ensuring that people actually all around the world get vaccinated, really vaccinated by truly effective and proven so vaccines, that we uh, support uh, COVAX uh, and uh, and others who are getting those vaccines into the arms of people in low or middle uh, income countries, that we um, help to ramp up production capacity around the world. I mean, all these things are things that affect people's daily lives in a very real way. You know, helping health systems around the world. I mean, the EU, through the Team Europe approach, as we call it, which means all our member states and the European Union itself and the European Investment Bank, have invested close to 40 billion uh, euros in the past year and a half to support the health systems of many, many poor countries around the world. This is not getting a lot of attention, you know. Uh, It's not a big headline grabber because it affects many, many countries, and it's basically a grassroots effort. But, you know, 
this saves millions of lives if it's done right. And we feel we have a responsibility to send that message as well. And that also is another concrete deliverable that came out of the summit. Right. You mentioned the uh, aircraft dispute. Now, that was a, a long-standing, long-running dispute uh, that was done. You now still have things like trade, some trade disputes, you know, steel, aluminum, I guess, on the, Europe, on the American side of them, bourbon and blue jeans, and the tariffs that were imposed by the Europeans in retaliation. What, what, what's your, I think the Biden administration said that they have relaxed those through the end of the year so that they could, they, these talks could run course. Um, what's your, how do you handicap the the possibility of reaching well, a deal there. So these tariffs, the steel aluminum tariffs, uh, that were based on a determination that the European Union is a national security threat to the United States by abusing the rules of the WTO uh, are illegal tariffs. And we've said this from the beginning. Uh, they have caused very serious harm to uh, Europe and to our industry and to you know hundreds of thousands of workers. And then uh, we had the legal right to uh, impose what I call rebalancing measures, our own tariffs, on U.S. goods, such as bourbon and other things that you mentioned, and we did. And that, of course, has hurt the U.S. economy. So what we did now, and it was very important, is we sat down with the Biden administration, and we identified together, and we agreed on the real problem here, which is, of course, not Europe or European imports. In fact, European imports, if anything, have gone down the past year in the U.S., not up. But overcapacity of, of steel production around the world, mostly generated by China, Mm. which is responsible alone for 50% of all steel aluminum exports. So what the EU did in June uh, in a very important goodwill gesture was to suspend our right to increase the tariffs that we were forced to impose on the U.S. economy as a response to the U.S. tariffs and to say that by the end of the year, in the next five and a half months, we create a window of opportunity to address the real problem, the forest, as opposed to the trees, which is the overcapacity. And I believe, I hope that we can do this. Uh, the goal is by the end of the year to be able to lift the tariffs on both sides, because in fact, they are at a time that we're trying to recover hurting our economies. That makes no sense. And we have to be able to do this. And if you look at the US here today, you will see that there are hundreds of uh, manufacturing industries that are also asking the Biden administration to lift those tariffs, because they are being affected very negatively by the fact that they now have to use in their inputs steel from the U.S. that is way more expensive than it used to be before. So it is not a black and white picture in the United States um, either. Uh, and yeah. I hope that when you balance all these things, we'll be able to, uh, to resolve this, uh, uh, this irritant as well. Because those irritants, let me just say, Rob, those irritants mask something supremely important which is that there are no two economies that are more open and more interconnected and more providing of prosperity to each other's citizens than the EU and the US. And in fact, the vast amount of trade between us is frictionless and supremely beneficial to our citizens, to our companies and to our workers. Every year, American CEOs and American workers vote with their feet and invest massively in the EU economy more U.S. investment and profits come to the United States itself and to its workers from investments in the EU than they do from U.S. investments anywhere else in the world. And today, about 60% of all foreign investment coming to the U.S., creating about 8 million direct and indirect jobs, are investments that come from the EU, 
not from anyone else combined. And that is because right. our markets, in fact, are fair. They are open. We do produce goods by protecting labor rights, by protecting the environment, by doing all these things that many others don't do. And our consumers, our workers, and our CEOs and companies appreciate it. So you talked about some of the successes uh, or sort of the areas of, of convergence between the European Union and the United States. There were a couple of things that came out of those, uh, the, the summit, uh, and, and we've seen them in some of the, the, the sort of the cabinet level summits. A bit of difference on things like Russia, the response to Russia or approach to Russia. And you mentioned China. You know, in the last, uh, in the G7, or there was a conversation, maybe you call it a debate between the U.S. and some of its allies about how hard to, uh, you know, charge the language with China. Do you think there is a, is, is the European Union speaking, still sort of speaking with one voice when it comes to China? Or do you think that actually what this reflects is more, there's still, the European Union is trying to figure out how it wants to approach the, the competitive and cooperative elements that a rising China presents? Well, the European Union speaks with one voice when it comes to a strategy towards China. It was uh, it was established by all member states uniformly in 2019, and it identifies China as a systemic rival uh, in, in some areas, including governance and human rights, as a competitor and sometimes an unfair competitor when it comes to uh, trade, investment, the economy, you know, connectivity around the world, uh, you know, Belt and Road, etc. And in some instances, as a, a cooperation partner, someone that we have to work with whether it comes to you know, fighting climate change or dealing with non-proliferation. The Biden administration has a very similar rhetoric. But of course, then that very, very clear and very strong agreement has to be translated in different areas in a way that, uh, that we try to coordinate. And that's why we set up uh, on China an EU-US dedicated dialogue. It kicked off on the 25th of uh, May, the, the first session in Brussels. And we'll continue trying to coordinate on all these different strands. It's never going to be easy, uh, although we, we, we both agree entirely on the uh, malady here. Um, you know, uh, there are different uh, prescriptions on how to best address it. Uh, but that, of course, is not a major um, point of contention anymore. We sit on the same side of the table, and that's the important thing. China is a very, very big economy in the world, and it's going to be coming uh, bigger. Uh, you know, as much as one may wish to ignore it, if that's what they want to do, you cannot do that. So the question is, how do you make sure that that economy plays by the rules, that it becomes increasingly open, increasingly fair? How do you have a level playing field? How do you use multilateral um, uh, cooperation, including the WTO, to ensure that rules today that don't cover some of the most unfair Chinese practices uh, can be amended? Uh, how do you work uh, bilaterally or through other regional coalitions to address some of the things China is doing? I mean, all these things, of course, are on the table and are being discussed. Uh, with Russia, we similarly set up a dedicated dialogue on Russia between the EU and the US in this last summit on the 15th of June. And we will be shortly beginning to discuss similar issues with, uh, with Russia. Uh, let me just say, however, uh, if I may, Rob, just to underline one thing. Sure. In the past, in the past uh, just few months, when you look at sanctions, you will see that the policies of the European Union and the United States have been much more and visibly um, uh, aligned than has been the case in the past few years. We made a point of trying to achieve this because we've made a point of indicating that whenever we act together on such kinds of restrictive measures, they are much more effective 
And in the past, we often saw the U.S. administration going its own way, ignoring allies in this effort. So when it comes to Navalny, uh, we imposed at the same time coordinated new sanctions on Russia, in addition to those, of course, that we have for uh, Ukraine. And uh, those sanctions were the first time that the EU used its own human rights sanctions regime. When it comes to Xinjiang, we imposed uh, coordinated sanctions, and and uh, and China didn't like that at all. It reacted actually, uh, I would I would argue, overreacted in a way that is undermining both its capacity to look sincerely and honestly at its deep uh, human rights problems and fixing them, but also the capacity of the EU and China and others to work together in China in a more constructive way. It's not going to work if China decides to ignore what's happening in Xinjiang and instead to try to impose sanctions of members of the European Parliament. Uh, you know, we work together when it comes to uh, Myanmar and, and other cases. So you see a much more serious uh, effort and a successful one to leverage our collective strength in uh, trying to bring uh, around positive change. And I have to say, if you're a human rights defender around the world today, maybe not a few years back, but today you can again feel confident that the United States and the European Union will be on your side together, ensuring that human dignity, a fundamental issue and a fundamental right enshrined in the Universal Declaration. So, you know, you may not live in the democracy I live in, uh, in Greece or in the European Union or in the United States, and they're different democracies, but you have to be treated as a human being with dignity. Uh, you know, you cannot be beaten up in silence because you're saying something any particular government uh, or any particular majority group doesn't like. You know, you cannot have a situation where there are no uh, independent courts and no independent media and no independent anything to put a check, a check and a balance. I mean, that yeah. violates human dignity. So you don't have to say, oh, I love European democracy or I love American democracy. I want to do the same. But if you're fighting for human dignity and human rights, you're going to find two allies together on your side. Well, yes, now to invoke the, the Pericles Jeffersonian link, as it were, but, but it, you know, it was, it was a little bit problematic for a few years there with the United States, no? I mean, when you think of it as an ambassador now, I know you'll give me a very diplomatic answer, ambassador, but um, how safe do you think it is, this, the, this sort of shift in the United States towards uh, embrace, embracing once again those rights, those that have been, are of course, embraced in the Constitution, but which were, you know, let's be honest, they created real issues under the Trump administration. Are you, are you guys happy that this is going to run its course and the United States can be a, a long-term dependable partner on that front? The United States has been the biggest defender of human rights and democracy around the world for uh, for centuries. Uh, you know, they, there can be bumps in the road, it goes without saying, but I have no doubt that the DNA of the United States is to lead in those issues, as is the DNA of the European Union. We face democratic issues once in a while as well in the EU, but we never question the fact that we can actually overcome uh, the, uh, the challenge because we know who we are and we are quite confident and quite proud about who we are and how we were set up. So that's something that obviously the United States is dealing with as we speak. I mean, they're looking at you know, the very big question of voting rights. And they're trying to, uh, through Congress, determine whether or not there can be a federal bill to address those issues or whether or not there can be a situation where um, question marks arising from different actions taken by big, different state legislators, you know, uh, are problematic and should be addressed. I mean, this is a big discussion. Another yeah. big discussion in the country, of course, has to do with economic inequality. I mean, I have to say, 
that COVID exposed that issue even more than before in the United States. The U.S. Uh, has had to invest massively in a number of packages from the Trump administration to the Biden administration now, in a sense, to support social safety nets that in the United States, as you know, don't really exist in the way that in, in Europe they exist. Uh, and so uh, it's a quite interesting discussion. In Europe, we had to invest less money on those social safety nets because they kicked in automatically when COVID hit in many instances. I mean, they were already in place. So a real issue that is being discussed in the U.S. a lot is how economic inequality has affected the uh, the way that different citizens look at the at the U.S. democracy if they feel that it actually delivers for citizens. And this is something that goes both for the you know blue-collar worker in a, in a particular state to a white-collar worker in another state or to a young kid out of college trying to get a decent job. So this is another major issue that, that is tied into democracy, both in, the, in Europe and the United States. And of course, you have the race uh, discussions in, in the United States that are very uh, strong and, and very prevalent, whether it is around uh, policing and policing reform, or whether it's mo uh, you know, more uh, on the issue of uh, racial equality and dealing with, uh, with discrimination. I mean, these issues as well are issues that the Biden administration has identified as very important for the U.S. democracy. So far be it from me to take a position of how all this will, will unfold. But I can tell you from our experience in Europe that we have faced over the years many, many similar issues. And as I said at the beginning, uh, we are concerned about them when they uh, when they raise their head. Uh, we uh, you know we we try to deal with, with them in Europe according to our own institutional uh, architecture. But uh, we never doubt we never doubt uh, that major democracies in the end prevail. And that I think you will see uh, here as well. And you are seeing. Yeah, no, that's that's very hopeful. I guess one last question. I mean, you look at the, the diverging economy, I wouldn't say diverging, but you look at the United States economy. I was back in the States for a couple of weeks and it's absolutely booming. And uh, I was on Wall Street going through some of the banks, investment funds. They've never been busier. In Europe, it's still quite quiet relative to what we're seeing in the US. Are you worried about the, that there's some, that, that there will be a, it's just, do you think it's just a lag or is it a sort of, does this reflect some fundamental difference in the way that these two big block economies are going to emerge from the pandemic? No, I think it is a lag. And I think if anything, you will see Europe in a few years emerging much stronger from the pandemic because of the emphasis we've placed on the infrastructure, our infrastructure package, which is the next generation of you, about a trillion uh, dollars, uh, which is uh, what the U.S. is discussing now, except it's very, very focused on uh, green development in our member states, on digital development in our member states. In other words, in what we have determined and we have put the whole muscle of the European Union and our member states behind which is the new growth strategy for, for, for the EU in the next, in the next decades. The, uh, what, what you're seeing now, uh, in some ways, absolutely, is a U.S. economy booming faster than the EU economy. That is a result of, an, of a number of factors. I mean, we, in the EU, we place from the beginning much more emphasis in shutting down our economies and trying to, to ensure that our health systems and, uh, you know, would not be overwhelmed and that, you know, we could uh, protect as many lives as possible in the e U.S., uh, from the beginning, there was uh, uh, arguably a more laxed approach to uh, to shutting down that allowed the economy to to move faster and then to come out faster. But of course, uh, you know, with uh, you know, with with a trade-off in terms of uh, the way that COVID uh, was affected, uh, you know, uh, a spike yeah. rate that stuff. Then, you know, uh, as well in Europe, we didn't pump as much money, um, uh, as much discretionary fiscal spending because as Europeans, we don't have that capacity as as European Union, European Commission to do so. 
in the U.S., you had these uh, massive infusions of money in people's pockets, largely because, as I said, you also have a, uh, a weaker social safety net uh, system here uh, to take care of people. And that is, uh, you know, a big fiscal infusion that happened under Trump and, and, and now under Biden as well. And that money also, of course, uh, creates an Im immediate high uh, to, the, uh, to the economy. Uh, but uh, we in Europe pumped in massive amounts of money as well. We allowed our member states to do so also by relaxing immediately our fiscal rules in the European Union. And, and many member states did so as well. We, we have now the new budget, the new generation EU that is already beginning to disperse funds that will keep the single market very strong and at a level playing field, if you like, which is for us the biggest economic achievement we can, we can have. For the first time, European Union countries borrowed together in the open markets, uh, which was a huge change, as you remember, from the financial crisis. So this crisis has made Europe again, again, come out more united and stronger than before. And I think that that is a overriding message. You know, we are 27 different member states. We've gone through a number of crises the past few years, financial crises, immigration, Brexit. And every time people assumed and predicted that this would be the end of us, right? I mean, I remember back in 2011, I was a foreign minister of Greece. No one wanted to talk to me about foreign policy. Everyone wanted to know from me when Greece would leave the euro, when the euro would collapse, when the European Union would collapse. And I told everyone, you know what? Because many of them were actually the same uh, Wall Street people that you, you, you referenced. I said, if you really want to lose your money, why don't you just go ahead and bet your money on that prediction? that Europe is not going to you know, make it. Because of course it is going to make it, and we have made it. Uh, and it's a stronger Europe now that, it, that, that is the reason why the Biden administration also, I think, looks forward to a greater cooperation. We want a strong United States as Europeans. It is in our national interest if it, the U.S. is strong. The U.S. wants a strong Europe. It is in its national interest if Europe is strong. And this is how we're both emerging out of the pandemic. All right. Well, Ambassador, thank you for your time. Before I let you go, though, should I t give me like three reasons that I should choose Greece as my vacation destination for this summer? You know what? If I were the Greek ambassador, I would just jump straight to that trap that you, you can't said. do this because even though you're from Greece, you're like, I, you have to I say have, Lithuania to Latvia to. <laughs> You pick your country. You have 27 of the most beautiful countries in the world with the most diverse cultures. And it is a unity and diversity that makes Europe so amazing. You got two or three weeks, visit more than two or three countries. Uh, <laughs> if you want to come to Greece, I, I assure you, you will have a, an absolutely fantastic time. Okay, well, that's spoken like a true diplomat. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for your time. Thank you very much. That concludes this podcast episode. Thank you very much for joining us in the series. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation for the EACC Transatlantic Pulse. Please stay tuned for the next installment. Take care.